The principles of holiness are continued. There are two mysteries that only God can define for us and explain to us their importance and how we are to respond to these two mysteries. The first of those is in Leviticus 17 and it's the mystery of life itself. God simply gives to us the truth of how life is relative to him and how we are to respond to his teaching, to his instruction, his admonition. We will cover the other mystery, God willing, next time in Leviticus 18. But tonight, it's the mystery of life. It's in Leviticus 17. We have seen up to this point in Leviticus, God's provision. In other words, God said to his people, this, this is who you are, and this is who you are to me. This is who I am to you. And so this is your provision. You're mine, and I'm your God. So that's an unalterable relationship. That's a covenant relationship that God has established. Man didn't have anything to do with it. God does it, and God assumes responsibilities within that covenant relationship. But after the provision or after the empowerment, let's say, comes the instructions for behavior. That order is never reversed anywhere in the Bible at any time in man's relationship with God. It's never reversed. First, God empowers you then he instructs you with regard to your direction, um, behavior. So having seen now that God has made clear to his people that they are separate, they're his, he gives them law, he expects them to obey the law because they are different and separate from all of the other nations in the world. They are his people. Now, with that truth, armed with that truth, here is how they are to carry on in the world, behave in the world. God is not a legalist. In other words, God doesn't give the behavior first and, the, and then tells us this is who we are. He tells us who we are first and then he gives us the instruction to behavior. He empowers us to do what he expects us then to do. So now we begin in Leviticus 17, uh, the continuing instruction of the holiness of God's people, but it moves more now into the area of, 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 the, of the behavior of his people, how we are to act in this world, things that we are to know which will affect how we act, our attitudes and so forth. First of all, in Leviticus 17, I want us to see and understand the importance of central worship. 
God is a God of order. God is a loving God. And because he loves us, there are parameters. There are, there, there is a, there is a circle where we're told uh, to stay in. It's a, as a matter of fact, there's an interesting study on the, um, the etymology of the word, the English word church. The Greek word for church is ek, ekklesia. It's a compound where ek means out from. Klesia comes from kaleo, which means to call or to call out from. So in the Greek and in the original Bible, what we call the church really references an assembly of people who have this in common. God has called them to himself. Now, if you take the evolution of the etymology, what happens is in a Latin world, in the history of the church, for whatever reason, the concentration is set on a word that is translated out of ecclesia, which means called out ones, and it becomes kirk or kirkos. So it's like oh, K-I-R-Q-U-E or even K-I-R-K-U-S. In the development and advancement or progression of the English language, <clears throat> that word becomes the word circus. Circle, circus, and it refers to a place, a separated place. Now, that's not the original text. The original text is a separated people, not a separated place. But it becomes then in the English translation, church, which frankly, as I said, to study the etymology and the philology of the, of the word carries you back to that word circus or circus. Some people may think church is a circus. I don't know. <clears throat> but a circus is not a place with Dumbo and, and Elmo the Clown. It is a place in the earliest English language that is a separated place. Piccadilly Circus or some other. It's a separated place. Circle is a designated place. So what happens then is that in the English-speaking world, by definition, that world is carried more into the, the place than the people. All of that said, 
wherever God's people are in the New Testament era, two or three gathered, I'm there with them. The Spirit of God is with us. And a spirit of worship, and the word comes from, from uh, worship. So God is worthy to have all of our attention. He is worthy to receive praise. He is worthy uh, to receive our submission, our obedience, our humility. He is above all, and therefore it is his worthiness. That's another way of saying our worship, our expression toward his worthiness. So in a New Testament world, that can be in my living room with a group of people. It can be here. It can be out in the parking lot. It can be anywhere where God's people have gathered together for the purpose of expressing the worthiness of God, the worthiness of our expression of praise and, and our humility before him and our expression toward him in prayer and so forth. And of course, singing, lifting up our voice and singing praises uh, to our God. And while it's, it's a people thing in the New Testament, before it was a people thing, the people were designated to worship with regard to a place thing. So now we're talking about the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. We're still at the foot of Sinai. We're still there. Moses is still getting the law and giving the law. So we haven't moved very far from where we were in Exodus, frankly. And now God <coughs> teaches his people, <coughs> excuse me, that other people simply couldn't know because only God has the meaning of these things. And one of those is, is, is the essence of life itself. I'm talking physical life. This is, where, uh, this is where God's people, again, are seen as being separated from the other people because we have it straight from the source, the creator of life, to know what life is and how it is relative with regard to our worshiping Yahweh, our God. So our attention, first of all, is drawn to the importance of central worship. Even in the New Testament era, where the emphasis is on the people and not on the place, we still are told in 1 Corinthians that God is a God of order. Let everything be done in order. We have the entire New Testament that teaches us principles of Christian living and those principles cannot be violated, especially in a time of assembly before our God in a time of worship. <clears throat> so we know from reading the scriptures and from establishing within our congregations sound doctrine and theology we understand the general principles of worship, at least we should. Now, 
if no one is held accountable to others in the faith, New Testament, I don't know if it's a bad word or not. I don't think it was, is a bad word because my da daddy used to use it a lot. And he, he would say any jackleg could come along and start a church. And that jackleg, devoid of biblical knowledge, could lead people into error. Which would disaffect, which would be very, very dangerous for the people involved. That's why, that's why past anybody, anybody should always be accountable to other people. And the group, of course, is accountable to the truth of the word. And if something is done in the name of God or as the people of God, and it is disallowed in scripture, then such behavior or action is worthy of condemnation. Now, take that in mind, accountability. There were first apostles and then prophets and then evangelists and then pastors and teachers. And there is this flow of accountability all the way through in the New Testament. Well, the accountability here, of course, involves the Levitical priesthood, in this time, in this particular time, it would involve Moses, but Moses is sort of like John the Baptist. He is a distinct character whose office was a one and done thing. You don't have Moses, you don't have continual lawgivers uh, after Moses, it was Moses. And you don't have harbingers of the Christ, it was John the Baptist and that's it. So Moses was a, was a unique character, but the Levitical priesthood continues. And of course, the people of God continue generation after generation. In the giving of the law, they are in uncharted territory. They are, as the people of God, the nation of God's elect, they are now in a... Um, they are in a, uh, an arena, a realm where no, no people have ever been. Thus God gives the law. So now God becomes the immediate source. It's God's word. It becomes the Torah. It becomes the law. And this is God's word. And so they, they are expected to be accountable to the hierarchy that God permits to exist in his nation. And all of them, prophet, priest, and king, are subject to obedience of the law, the word of God. Here God establishes the importance of central worship. Sometime back, it was in the 80s. There was an unrestrained movement within the church 
where this particular movement obviously did not regard the Bible as a closed book. The word of God to them was the word of God to be obeyed, but the word of God would continue to flow into modern apostles and and modern day prophets and so forth. And those people, and it was real big on television back then, those people would create any kind of a scene or, or create any, any kind of a, of a message that they wanted to create. And they had a way of, of getting the people all uh, worked up in some of those pursuits. And I remember it was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, Everybody saw this as an open mission field, as, as well we should have, but this particular group rushed over there armed with their particular doctrine. And there was a particular woman who was a preacher in this movement. Now you're looking into the eyes of starving Russians. They had a hard time. This was a very difficult time for them. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, their money was worthless, their economy had tanked, I mean, just nothing. And these people were hungry. And this woman, in order to elevate herself somehow, preached about how she had a pet chicken. I'm telling you the truth here. Uh, she heard it with me on television. She's telling about how she had a pet chicken. I think it was her daddy. Put the car in reverse, ran over the chicken. She jumped out and with all of her powers, resurrected that chicken. Now you have a bunch of hungry <laughs> Russians who are thinking, you know, why? Um, and those particular, that particular woman and her group, they were just unchecked. They could claim any kind of dream. They could claim any kind of whatever. And my theology is that if it doesn't fit in the word of God, then it's just not the word of God. It's just not that, it's something else. So they created areas of worship and one of their followers was a prophet of laughter. And he would get on television and he would start giggling. I'm not kidding you. He was, a, he was, he was fatter than he was a fat guy, he was bigger than me. And he would start laughing. And then he would really begin to laugh uncontrollably. Now this was the service. This was the worship. And he starts laughing and then other people start laughing and they get to laughing so hard that they're rolling around on the ground and, and they're just carrying on. And that was the whole service. 
the worship of laughter. Now, I don't, I don't have any problem with a good joke every once in a while. I like to laugh. People ought to laugh. It's good medicine. But you can't make that into any kind of worship where that's just it. There's nothing else. That's just it. So there was no centrality for those who had cut the bonds of the word of God. There was, there was no centrality of worship. It was just one, it was in my view, it was one guy trying to outdo the other guy with a new thing and so forth. That same kind of, that, that, that same kind of uh, looseness regarding worship is seen in an Old Testament sense here in the first part of this passage of scripture. Yeah, and it, and it has to do with the essence of life. There's a lot of blood spilled in the tabernacle worship. It was, it was instructed by God. Animals were killed. I'm sure it was a gruesome thing. The blood would be all over the place. But the lesson was how serious sin is and that only a perfect life could pay for a person's sin, substitutionary death, atonement vicarious offering. And as we've seen in Leviticus, these offerings just went on all the time. Someone had foolishly done something and it was unlawful with regard to Moses or did something he didn't recognize as being unlawful until he realized it was a sin of ignorance, whatever. Something had to die. It had to bleed. Blood because of sin. And then there, was those, there were those five offerings that we studied, those five sacrifices. And just about all of them were filled with blood, killing something, draining it of its blood until it was gone. And the blood all over the place. We just went through the, the Day of Atonement here in our study. And the blood of a sacrifice in what would have been the most beautiful part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. In case you would, it was covered in gold. And the lid was the mercy seat. And the blood of an animal had to be completely poured out and spilled on the mercy seat in what was otherwise a beautiful room inside other beautiful rooms. Every time the blood was spilled, it was a serious expression of God's wrath on sin and the necessity for worshipers 
to be keenly aware of how God views sin and of their need for atonement. So this was life for life. This was a teaching that went on hundreds of years in the Jewish culture, in the Israelite culture. Blood, blood, screaming animals, squirming, not wanting to die, but dying anyway at the hand of worshiper and assistance of a priest. Over and over, over and over and over. The thing was alive. And then after a gruesome thing, in just a minute or two, it was dead. Life. Life. Blood. Death. Now, how are the people to understand this? You have to be careful with life. Human life, animal life, doesn't make any difference. Life. One has to acknowledge that life belongs to God. Human life, animal, doesn't matter. So here we go. To deal with blood meant that you had to deal with it in the presence of or by the direction of Yahweh. You could not go out on your own and just spill blood. That was life. So you had to include God here somewhere. Now here we go. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, this is the thing Yahweh has commanded saying, any man of the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, lamb, goat inside the camp or who slaughters outside the camp, but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer up as a sacrifice to Yahweh uh, before the tent of meeting or before the tabernacle of Yahweh. This act shall be counted for that man as blood. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. If you are considered to be a child of God, you had to hold blood, which was the essence of life, in the highest respect. If you were foolish in that regard, you were out. I mean, you just weren't part of the group anymore. That's a, that's a terrible thought. In order that the sons of Israel should bring their offerings, which they slaughter on the open field and bring them to Yahweh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting to the priest and slaughter them as peace offerings to Yahweh. Now, a peace offering can still be eaten, you understand, but not the blood. The blood, the essence of life belongs to Yahweh. It's his life. He created the life. God's people have to understand that God is sovereign over all life. Not just some of it. All of it. Any life. 
because God is the creator. They're not prohibited from killing animals, but they are instructed to appreciate and reverence the power of life and that God has given it. And so in the spilling of blood, regardless of what the situation was, they had to bring Yahweh into this thing. They couldn't just think that life was theirs to do with as they wanted to. That life was Yahweh's. And that Yahweh had to be included. And so they had to, they had to come to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The brazen, they had, the brazen altar, they had to come to the priest and slaughter them as peace offerings to Yahweh. The priest shall dash the blood upon the altar of Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall cause the fat to go up in smoke as a pleasing fragrance. And they shall no longer slaughter their sacrifices to the satyrs, the satyrs, after which they stray. This shall be an eternal statute for them, for all their generations. Let me go back where it says, um, here it says, this, essentially what this says is, bring it to Yahweh. The essence of life is Yahweh's. So what's the mystery of life? The mystery of life is there is no life apart from Yahweh. Doesn't matter what the life is. It doesn't matter if it's a puppy dog or a king. God gave to it its life. When you study the book of Genesis in, in what, chapter 2, the dust of the earth, of the earth, Ha'adamah. Adam is in there. Adam means dirt, dust, earthy. Breathed. Nafach. And from that comes ruach, which is breath of life or spirit. And this is imparted by God, the breath of life. And when nafach meets Adam, a third thing is produced, and it is the nephesh, the soul. The personal presence of God, and then nafach. The earthiness of man, and the Adam, and the earth, and the dust. And the two come together, cause man to be a nephesh, to cause him to be a living soul. It, he would not be a living soul if he doesn't have blood pulsing through his veins. He couldn't be. There would be no, there would be no life. There would be no soul life. So Yahweh is to be acknowledged as sovereign over all life, certainly our lives, and even every life, whether human or animal, every life that we interact with. Now, there's going to be a, we'll sit in just a couple of minutes here. There's a, there, there, you can hunt. It's okay, you can hunt. But be sure that you honor Yahweh with the blood.
of this animal. Be sure that you worship Yahweh and reverence him, reverence him for every life. The life of an animal can sustain the life of God's people. That's permitted in, in, in the scriptures. Under the law of Moses, only certain animals and other animals would not be kosher. But here, they're told, you bring it to Yahweh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. You are not free to go out here all across the countryside and think that you're just going to engage in some kind of worship. That you're just going to invent in your mind what the meaning of blood is. You can't do it. You are forbidden from doing that. If you do it, you're cast out. So he says over here, they shall, verse, uh, what is that, seven? Uh, they shall no longer slaughter their sacrifices to the satyrs after which they stray. A satyr, you know what a satyr is? What? What? It's, it's a demon that is illustrated as a half goat and half man, a satyr. Now, what the people were doing was they were seeking to appease the spirits. And in just giving the blood to demon spirits, to satyrs. They were claiming that life is mine. I claim it back. And I'll do with it what I want to do with it. Well, that's diametrically opposite of the law of God here. Can't do that. Life is not yours. Any life. There's not a life that belongs to you that you gave to it its life, God does that. And it is illustrated in the very force of life, which is blood itself. So this shall be an eternal statute for them, for all their generations. And you should say to them, any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who will sojourn among them, who offers up a burnt offering or any other sacrifice, but, but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to make it a sacrifice to Yahweh, that man shall be cut off from his people. The essence of life belongs to God. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the life of his creation and honor him by bringing the blood. Okay, now, God goes on, and this is something that other nations didn't know and didn't accept, didn't receive. They weren't even taught. This belongs to the, this is a teaching that belongs to the people of God. The importance of the blood. Any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among them who eats blood, I will set my attention upon the soul who eats the blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. So, Don't eat blood. This was very, very, very important 
to Israelites and to the Jews of the New Testament. Because blood is the essence of the life from whence it comes. And that essence belongs to God. And he must be acknowledged in that. He must be honored. God must be honored in that. For the soul life of the flesh is in the blood. It's an interesting Hebrew word, probably mostly translated the life of the flesh is in the blood. But in the word is the root nephesh, which is soul. Now the spirit is one thing and the soul is yet another. Every man is a triune person. He has body, he has soul, he has spirit. It is the spirit that is God awareness. It's seen as the breath of life in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teaching is that the breath goes back to God, the spirit, the breath goes back to God who gave it. Closely connected to the blood. When the breathing quits, the life is over. I, I was, I thought so deeply on this. We were, Pat and I and my sister and brother-in-law and her sister, Janice, were with my mother in her last hours, which became minutes. And her breathing shallowed and became farther apart. The breaths became farther apart. God gave her that breath. This was an essential part of her physical life. When that breath was gone, it went back to God who gave it. The time came when she took her last breath and did not take another. And it was over. Her spirit, her breath of life, went back to God who gave it. And she was gone. Had one of those things on her fingers that counted her oxygen. It was around in the 90s, I guess, for a while. Slipped into the 80s. Down to the 40s, back up to the 80s. Down to the 40s, maybe up to the 60s. And then suddenly it was blanks. Nothing. Nothing was there. A little finger reader thing that reads oxygen, it was blank. The spirit that God had given her 101 years earlier, he took back to himself. It's an essential part of life. And it is that part of life, now the nephesh here, the soul life of the flesh and the blood, this very, this very verse, this part of the verse connects 
the importance of the blood with the importance of breathing. You have to have blood to live. Oxygen feeds the blood. I'm not a doctor. I just read a lot. Poor old George Washington had the wrong doctors. He was sick and they covered him with leeches. They had to get the bad blood out of him. Well, they, they, they killed him. <laughs> they took all of his blood practically out of him. He didn't have anything to fight back with, and he died. They just didn't believe the Bible. The soul life. Here is blood, here is breath of life. And this gives, this energizes the physical man. And the physical man, spirit is God-awareness, Soul is self-awareness. And body is awareness of surroundings. The soul life is the, of the flesh is in the blood. This is what makes the individual an individual. Flesh, spirit, blood, soul, soul life. When my mother's spirit left, that won't be, that spirit won't be taken and given to someone else. It's unique. Her soul life in the blood. The soul life of her flesh and the breath of life, this made her a nephesh, this made her a soul. It makes me a soul. It makes you. You're an individual. You're an individual. God created you. That's it. This is why this life is to be honored and reverenced. I used to raise Irish wolfhounds. They would look practically the same, but they were different. They never obeyed the same. They never behaved the same. Never acted in the same way because they were different. We have four children. They're different. Grandchildren, they're different. Why? Because God made them that way. That's why. This is, this is the essence of life. It has to do with the spirit which God gives and takes away. And it has to do with the soul life of the flesh which is in the blood. And I have therefore given it to you to be placed upon the altar to atone for your souls. For it is the blood that atones for the soul. What is offered for my atonement? The blood of a sinless sacrifice. Because then God sees, by His decree, God sees that I can take the innocence of the sacrifice. 
and at the same time transfer my sin and guilt to the thing being offered. In John chapter 6, our Lord Christ said, You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. This offended the Jews greatly because of this passage. They did not understand the connotation that Christ was offering himself to be our lives, his perfection to become ours. Of course, Christ said, if you don't do this, you're just not, you're not mine. Many of the people who were following him left at that point, John says. And the disciples came and said, Master, this is a hard and difficult thing that you've said. And of course, the teaching goes on from Christ. Well, all of that comes back to this. The essence of Christ has, has covered me in justification by the decree and will of God, by the purpose of God. And this is what the teaching here is all about. That it's to be placed on the altar to atone for your souls. It is the blood that atones for the soul, for you. For you, who you are. The blood atonement. For you, the individual, you. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, none of you shall eat blood and... The stranger who sojourns among you shall not eat blood. You don't have that right. It doesn't belong to you. And all you're doing is feeding on a fallen life. Why would you want to feed on a fallen life? Christ says you feed on a glorious life, an unending life. So they're, they're forbidden from eating blood. And any man of the children of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them, who hunts, who traps a quarry of a wild animal or a bird that may be eaten, sheds its blood, he shall cover it, that is the blood, with dust. For regarding the soul life of all flesh, its blood is in its soul life. And I said to the children or the sons of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the soul life of any flesh is its blood. All who eat it shall be cut off. And any person, whether a native or a stranger, who eats carrion or what was torn shall immerse his garments and immerse himself in waters, a ritual of cleansing, and shall remain unclean until evening, and then he shall become clean. When he does this, he acknowledges that this is, this is blood that belongs to God, the life that belongs to God. But if he does not immerse his garments or immerse his flesh, he shall bear his sin, the mystery of life. Only God can explain that to us. Leviticus 18 is next week. The mystery of sex. I expect a house full. Really, read Leviticus 18. 
Let's pray. Father, how we love you. Oh God, thank you for your instruction. And how you've made my single life important in your eyes. Thank you that you gave me life. That you've given me life eternal. Thank you, Lord, for your word and all that it teaches. Oh God, help us to hide it in our hearts so that we won't sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.